Now I can hear. Fine. Uh, so today we're going to do the Night of Faith. You need to know the Night of Faith before you can understand Hiroshima Monomore, which we're going to show on Thursday. I postponed it one day from the original syllabus because we need the day to do the Night of Faith. I don't think there's anything else. Nothing follows from that since the DVD is in, shown in here. But yeah, it follows mainly that I have to start exactly at, uh, at uh, 10 minutes after 3.30, at 3.40, just because in case there's anything scheduled afterward, we're barely going to get out of here on time. It's an hour and a half long. So anything else? I put on, my, on the board there my office hours tomorrow, 2 to 3. I said on the syllabus 2 to 3.30, but so few people so far have come and talked to me that I don't need that extra time, so I'm going to split it between this course and the other course I'm teaching. But there you are, 2 to 3 in 303 Moses. Uh, one more thing I should say, this, the script for uh, Hiroshima One or More I have on reserve in the philosophy library, Howison Library, which is right next to my office, which is next to 303. I don't think it has a number. And uh, you're welcome to Xerox it or read it there. You can't take it out because that's not that kind of library. But you, you may, it's such a hard movie, you, you either want to get the script or may you, you may want to get the DVD and uh, watch it again. You, it's very hard to understand the first time through, although you're in a much better position to understand it than anybody else, given that you will have read the preamble from the heart. Okay, that's it. Now, let's start talking about the Kierkegaard. Unless, of course, there's any question, this is the moment to, if there's anything going wrong, you can't find your section, you don't know what, what going, what's happening in the course, this is a good time to say so. If I think things are going very well. I, as far as I can tell from my email, everybody has got, found a, a section and, is, and everybody who was on the waiting list and, and persevered has got, has, is in the course now. There's nobody in, on, who, isn't, who wants to be in the course who isn't in the course, is there? If the computer is working right, there shouldn't be. Okay, all that is clear. So we'll go back to a good question, which one of the TAs told me comes, up, comes from uh, his or her section. I don't remember who told me. But it's, and, and apparently it's bothering several people, and it might well, because it, they want to know what is Kierkegaard's unconditional commitment. And it, it, it looks like uh, not that we need to know, I mean, that's, but if, as long as it's come up, we might as well uh, talk about it for a minute, because it looks like it's, the, it's Regina, if, if, you, if you read that as this sort of cryptic uh, code, a message to, to Regina, which he p presents it as. But clearly, uh, it's not really Regina. Something is standing in the way well, of his loving and marrying Regina, and he, because he has some other calling. Remember he said when he was, was it 21 or something like that, he has to find out the cause for which he would live or die. And it turns out to be, and I mentioned it, but it is, again, I say you, know, <clears throat> you could understand all that's important about Kierkegaard without knowing anything about his life. But it turns out to be that he, one, his, he thinks his job is to make Christianity extremely difficult that the Lutheran church has made it so easy that all you have to do is be born in Denmark and you are a Christian, and that this is terrible because it stands in the way of people really becoming Christians. So his job 
is to uh, show that it's uh, very, very hard. And that's his defining commitment. And it looks like, in fact, it failed. He did not succeed in convincing anybody in Denmark, as far as I know, that, 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 that Christianity is sort of, that, that the Lutheran church is the enemy of Christianity. But that's all right. You're under, you're, his, under, his unconditional commitment might well be vulnerable. That's, they, they usually are. And we, we'll hear next time about how your unconditional commitment can put you out of the ethical. Next time, I mean after Hiroshima, when we're reading problem one and two. And this one did put him outside the ethical, since I don't think anybody could understand and I don't think he could justify why he was spending all of his time and energy trying to destroy the church and at the same time claiming to be a Christian. So anyway, all that is just background. So now it looks like the situation for Kierkegaard is he had what he took to be uh, or should have been or he felt should have been a defining commitment, but he felt that for some reason he couldn't go through with it. He didn't know yet what his calling was, but he, there was something that was his calling that made it impossible for him to marry Regina. And finally, he found his calling, namely writing this very strange anti-Christian, pro-Christian books. Uh, any question about that? I don't want to dwell on it. I mean, Heidegger, my favorite philosopher, once said in his Aristotle course, Aristotle was born and wrote and died, and that's all you need to know is background. I, mean, if, I feel the same way about Kierkegaard. It's mostly gossip that you find if you try to find the background. So let's get to the night of faith. Uh, and we, we, we've gone through all those movements of resignation in which one becomes a knight of resignation. And to become a knight of resignation is, is the movement of, of the sort of most modern, most Christian kind of movement where you take this unconditional commitment and you turn it into the ideal of it. As I, as I keep saying, it's like saying uh, uh, loving a particular person is too risky. It makes me too vulnerable. But I can turn this love into the significance of the love. Uh, but me, loving that particular person stays. I get defined in terms of that particular person, but it's the, I don't have to take any risks because the meaning is eternal, the meaning is safe, it's an, an, an infinite, not finite. So you get, you get something, namely that you get an identity uh, out of it. You become an individual, but you lack something there's nothing it tells you to do in the world of, of, of everyday existence in, in, in time and in uh, the finite, as Kierkegaard would say. Uh, and that's a big uh, negative. You can't really have a fulfilled relation to an ideal, uh, a memory. Uh, you've got to have a real person, but, that's, but then you have a risk. And if you get a real person back, you wouldn't know what to do with them because if you, if you can't stand the risk the first time around, you won't be able to stand the risk the second time around either. So, okay. So let's look at page 73 as how, where Kierkegaard's explaining all this. At the, at the middle of 73. I've read this already, but I just want to connect up. So 
he keeps his love young and he grows with him in years. On the other hand, he needs no final occasion for its growth. For the moment he made the movement, the princess is lost. That is, the princess as a finite, embodied lover is lost. All that's left of the princess is the ideal memory. Same thing with Dante. Beatrice says, when I died, you should have been happy about that because it really doesn't matter. It's the ideal of our relationship that matters. He needs none of the erotic titillations of the nerves at the sight of the beloved, nor does he need a finite, in, in a finite sense to be taking his farewell, for his memory of her is an eternal one. And because he's made that move, he's self-sufficient. He's not vulnerable anymore, skipping a little. He's grasped the deep secret that even in loving another, one should be sufficient unto oneself. How do, you, how do you do that? Love another and not be vulnerable and be sufficient? Simply love the, the meaning of the relationship and the memory of the relationship. I mean, I seem to be saying these things over and over. That's partly because I try to prepare you for the movie. I mean, but it's, it's also central to the, to the book. Now... Then comes the harder part. There's, some, there's a movement of resignation, which is different than becoming a knight of resignation. And, what, what, and, we have to, and even the knight of faith makes the movement of resignation. So we have to separate them out. And if, if you brought this with you, as I told you to, or want to get another one, which is lying there, uh, anybody need a copy of this? Uh, okay. Sorry, Dave. Oh, no, Beatrice, yeah, go ahead. Dave's already helped me get organized. So put your hands up if you need this, because I'm going to be talking about a chart on this page. It's the same chart that I gave out last time, but some of you don't have it, I see. Okay, so I'm talking about the chart at the top of the page with those various charts. And I'm I'm, I'll just run through where we are. So where everybody starts is at lower natures, which means the, having desires, infatuations, you know, superstitions, and all that. And they go through the ethical or the universal, and that is they mediate it. They get rid of their uh, obsessions and superstitions and... Uh, uh, sort of childish belief that they infant that, that they have to have all the satisfactions that they instant gratification they they get over all that and then they have an experience called the instant with a capital I and that's when that's when they get a defi defining commitment that tells them who they are makes them an individual and then comes the movement of resignation and now. The movement of resignation is this phrase I just read, in effect, that you can be sufficient unto yourself. That is, you can, you can make a movement in which you... Wait, I'm not sure I want to say that. Uh, no, I used to say that. It's, 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 it's not the right way to put it. Uh, never mind that. But what, what is the movement then? of resignation. It's the realization that 
everything is a kind of gift. You have no right to expect all your desires to be satisfied. Nothing you can do, no works, as, as uh, Luther would say, sort of guarantees that you're going to have a, a, a fulfilled life in, in this world. And uh, so you make, you, you understand that. I mean, in the end, it turns out, just parenthetically, that in the world of the spirit, you'll always be all right. We don't know what that means yet. But you understand that in this world, everything is a gift. You, you have no final control over it. That's why, I don't like, that's why I don't like the phrase sufficient unto yourself. I was wrong about that. The night of, the night of resignation becomes sufficient unto themselves because they say, I've got this memory. I've got this perfect uh, view of the significance of my love. And no, nothing can, bad can happen to that. Nobody can take that away. But the knight who is making only the movements of resignation hasn't, doesn't go that way of being self-sufficient, has another sense in which they are vulnerable in the, because everything is a gift. They have, everything could be taken away. They have to accept that with a kind of suffering that goes with it, the realization that they're not going to be able to satisfy all their desires. And that, that movement of resignation is, uh, I think we should write it on the chart. The chart is still expresses my old version that you should write there after the movement of resignation can't count on satisfaction their desires. That's just one way of putting it, a million different ways of putting it. The sense that everything's a gift for which, insofar as you get anything nice, you should feel gratitude for it. You don't have, you, you, there's no reason why any good thing should be happening to you. Um, so, and that means you're reconciled to vulnerability because that means that you have no guarantee that you'll keep anything, and therefore you don't have any guarantee that you'll keep the person you love, they won't leave or die uh, either. Uh, but now the question is, and, and the night of resignation you see on the chart goes up to that level on the left, and that's it. It's a dead end for the night of resignation. They've given up, they settle for comfort in sorrow. The sorrow part is to give up get, having any guarantee of the enduring satisfaction of any of their desires. And the comfort is that nothing more bad can happen to them because they've already accepted the, their total vulnerability. But what about, now, now comes the, we're ready to get to the night of faith. What, why is it that the night of faith has to go through the movements of resignation? That's the first thing. Because what Kierkegaard says, I'll read it in a minute, that the night... I'm sorry, the, the night of faith, which is now branched off here to the right, uh, it makes the movements, the renunciation of resignation, and he makes them all the time. Even when he's a night of faith, he's making them. What, is, what, is that, what does that mean? Why is he saying that? Why does the night of faith have to go through the movements of resignation and be in them all the time? Well, it's because that's how he gets out of lower immediacy. That is, every, all, he shouldn't be sort of hooked on any of anything 
or believe that he has to satisfy any of his desires or her desires to, to have a meaningful life. He has to give all that up. Uh, on 73, he's talking about that. Well, not exactly. I found a better one. On 74. So, at about ten lines from the bottom, in infinite resignation, there is peace and repose and consolation in pain. Now, that's where the night of resignation, the night of resignation, ends up. But, but everybody's got to do it. So if you read that whole paragraph, you, you find that out. In infinite resignation, there is peace and repose. Now keep remembering, lo and behold, it's, I haven't understood this ever. And I'm trying each time, this time I'm doing a little better, I think. Uh, but I'm trying to get used to the fact that the night of faith, who is the, quote, joyful heir to the finite, we find out, has to go through and be in some kind of resignation and then go further. So in infinite resignation, there is peace and repose. Anyone who wants it, who has not debased himself, uh, can discipline himself to make this movement, with, with, which in its pain reconciles one with existence. Um, and that's, it can be a kind of total protection against any, make any kind of vulnerability. But it also can be, and now look at the middle of 75, in infinite resignation, infinite resignation is the last stage before faith. So anyone who has not made this movement does not have faith. For only in infinite resignation does my eternal validity become transparent to me. Only then can there be grass, talk of grasping an existence on the strength of faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, that key, I keep trying to say to myself and help and try to help you understand. So that's when you go through the get over the childish expectation that you have to satisfy and, and you deserve to satisfy any of your desires. That's, that gets you out of lower immediacy, out of childishness, out of being like, uh, Tirkegaard talks about the young, the young girl who thinks that uh, she loves somebody and everything's going to be just great. There's no problem there. Uh, but that's that's wouldn't that would just be an aesthetic emotion. I mean, feeling safe, feeling good, feeling oh boy, this I'm the kind of person that this is really going to work out, and it just feels like it's going to work out. And I bet I'm going to be I, I'm so lucky. I'm going to be happy all my life. All that is lower immediacy. That's that's, that's childishness or adolescence or something. And so yeah, and you've got to get over that and realize that there is no guarantee that anything's going to work out. And then you, you, you've gotten in the chart beyond the, the, to the point where you're at that big branch point, and then you can go on to faith. So now I have to explain how... And, and, but never you never get any sense when you go on to faith that somehow it's, it's guaranteed in a, uh, a way that you can uh, understand that everything is going to work out. You, you continue to hold on to this. This is the hard part. You continue to hold on to the understanding that everything is a gift, everything is vulnerable, even your love and, and, and your defining commitment is a gift and is vulnerable. You continue to hold on to that, but you don't get stuck 
in, in the comfort and sorrow that the night of resignation does. Now we have to try to explain that more and more. Um, so first, I think, I, I will try to explain the one other thing I never understand, but hope that it will be. I think we, under, we get this, this is my version for this, this year, that you, you get this explained to you in two steps. Kierkegaard sees that it's very hard to understand it. So first you get the story. I have to find it. I thought I had it marked. I do have it marked, so let's find it. The, the man who's going down the street thinking that he's going to have a great dinner and all he's going to really have is turnip soup, but that's all right, too. Where is that? Anybody got that? Should be on maybe 78. Hmm. Uh, I've got to find it. Uh, seven, what is it? 59. I'm going in the wrong direction. Hmm? 69. Okay, let's try that. Uh, yeah, okay, there. That's it. I'm 68 and 69. Now, what I think is going on is, he tells you, this guy's a knight of faith, that he says, but he's not... What's funny when you read it is you don't find anything about defining commitments or absurdity and paradoxes which you're going to get when you get to the night of faith. I think this is the part which the night of faith and the night of resignation share. The guy... No, 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 that's not right either. Ah, I thought... Okay. The night of faith, even though he's making the movements of resignation, is enjoying everything finite. Because he's, he's got not only the sense that it's all a gift, but the sense that no matter what happens, he will get what he really needs and everything will be all right. And that's what this guy who's going down the street thinking about this dinner, and he's, he's, he takes pleasure in everything in the finite, we're told about 15 lines up. And uh, why? And he delights. The top of sixty-nine is fine. Whoever gave me sixty, he delights in everything he sees around him, and so forth. It turns out he doesn't get the dinner that he's expecting. He only gets turnip soup, but that's all right. Uh, he's at the bottom of the page now. Comes this crucial thing: having he's done all that, but he and he drains in infinite resignation. A deep sorrow of existence. That's true. He's got infinite resignation. I think you got to keep saying that to himself. He's not a knight of resignation. He didn't stop there. He knows the bliss of infinity. That's, the, that's true. He's felt the pain of renouncing everything, whatever is most precious in the world. And he's done all that. And yet to him, finitude tastes as good as to one who's never known anything higher. For his remaining in the finite bore no trace of this anxious training. And still he had the sense of being secure to take pleasure in it, that is, in the finite, as though it were the most certain thing of all. Uh, and that's the interesting part. He comes, even though he's making the movements of resignation and given up everything as a gift which he has no guarantee of, he's sure that he'll, he, he, he can enjoy everything and he's not going to miss out on all the goodies of that the inf that finitude has. Let's go on. And, he, and still he has this sense of being secure and taking pleasure in it as though it were the most certain thing of all. 
So though he's given it all up in, 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 in seeing that it's not secure at all, he lives it as if it's the most secure of all. That's you looking all puzzled, and rightly so. This is supposed to be paradoxical. This is supposed to be something that the Knight of Faith can do, that the guy writing this, Johannes de Salentio, can describe, he says, that he can't do it, and I'm going to try to get you to under, see what, what it is that he's doing that is so puzzling. But let's go on. So he has a take as if it were the most certain thing of all, and yet the whole... Uh, Earthly form of his of form he presents is a new creation on the strength of the absurd. He has resigned everything infinitely. That's comfort and sorrow. It sees that it's all vulnerable. And then took everything back on the strength of the absurd. He's continually making the movement of infinity. That's infinite resignation. But he makes it with such accuracy and poise that he's continuously getting finitude out of it. And not a second would anybody su suspect anything else. Now, I'm going to have to say two things now. This 70 is a very important page. To begin with, at the middle of the page, Kierkegaard contrasts this person, Knight of Faith, who, had, in his movements of resignation, with the, knight of, the Knights of Infinity. Those are the Knights of Resignation. Those are the people who are stuck in resignation. The knights of infinity are dancers too. They have elevation. They make upward movement. They are strangers. I'm skipping a little in the world. They are strangers in the world in the sense that the only way they can understand being safe is by not committing themselves to anything. They, they have defenses against ever being vulnerable because they've seen with sorrow that you could lose anything. That's the knights of resignation. But now, the night of faith goes on and does something else. And I think now, this is my belief for this, this year, that what Kierkegaard's doing there is saying that uh, up to the, what I've been saying so far, you can't tell what's really going on. It looks like somebody has just sort of renounced everything and is like... Uh, in another place, Kierkegaard talks of them of these people who have renounced everything as not having to be anxious because they can't lose anything, and being relaxed and open like the birds, like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Talking Bible talk, and it looks like that's what he's been talking about. But he's told you, no, he's talking about nights of faith. So what happens? Well, at the bottom of the page, he tells you he hasn't really explained it yet. That's why I'm having such trouble explaining it. He's only told you about this guy who's going down the street and who's enjoying everything and, you, and who is somehow, we, we know, uh, renounced everything. But finally he tells you it. Yet this marvel, marvel can so easily deceive. I will describe the movements in a particular case which can illustrate the respective relationships to reality. For these are what everything turns on. And then... He gives you the defining commitment story. That it isn't as if the guy walking down the street doesn't have a defining commitment. He presumably does. But Kierkegaard sort of introduces you to him uh, only in the sense that he has uh, sort of renounced everything and still enjoys everything. But then he says that's not really the extreme case. 
the extreme cases where you have an unconditional commitment and you've renounced everything and yet you know that it's vulnerable and in effect you've given it up because it's vulnerable and a gift and you know you'll always have it. But that's now he says that's what he's going to describe. That de deceived lots of people since the marvel can easily deceive. I mean, Alistair McIntyre, the translator of this, is one of the people deceived. He thinks it's something like the birds of the field or Buddhism or something that Kierkegaard is proposing because you can't tell with this guy walking down the street whether he's a Zen Buddhist or what he is. But, when, but if you pay attention, when Kierkegaard introduces it, so to speak, the second half, then it's the young lad who falls in love with the princess. And now comes the really interesting kind of knight of faith. A knight of faith who has renounced everything and yet and seen the vulnerability of the unconditional commitment and yet he enjoys it as if there was no risk at all. And that's the extreme version of what we're trying to talk about. And that's Oh, and that is, I'm going to read you a quote later, but it's my favorite quote. I keep coming back to it. That he sees the sword hanging over the head of the beloved and loves her as if it's the surest thing of all. What, he's, what he finally is interested in is what it is to have an unconditional commitment which gives you an identity which you see is vulnerable, but you don't have defenses against the, the vulnerability you let yourself get more and more involved. That's, what, that's the paradox. That's what is so strange. You see that it's utterly uncertain and in a certain sense impossible because you can, it can't possibly give you the guarantee that you need if you're going to build your whole life on it. And then you build your whole life on it anyway. That's, that's what the Night of Faith does. And I'm still going to have to explain a lot, but I mean, I'm trying to give you the overall feeling. So by the bottom of the page, you've left Alistair Hanny behind and all the people who think that, that they understand this, they haven't understood it yet because he's got to explain now the really strange thing about the, that, that the night of faith can do, that the night of resignation can't do at all. Um, so I'm going to skip to 74. All this stuff is very condensed and it's all within a few pages. So no, I don't know. I've, I've sort of jumped ahead. I've already said that. So I'm not going to say it again. So let's go to 78. Okay, here, yeah, here's where you see what happens as clear as anywhere. The middle of 75 to start, that's better. Infinite resignation. Keep remembering that's not the night of faith. That's, that's the, it's going to turn out to be the night of resignation he's talking about. No, infinite resignation is the one they all have to go through. Okay, infinite resignation is the last stage before faith. You can see it in the Y-shaped chart. For only in infinite resignation does my eternal validity become transparent. That means that I, that I have the capacity to, to give up everything. But now, now comes, let us now have the night of faith make his appearance in the case discussed. He does exactly the same as the other night. He infinitely renounces the claim to the love 
which is the content of his life. You see, he, we've gone beyond the guy worrying about lamb stew or turnip soup. We've now, we've now focused on the special feature of the night of faith that he has gone through infinite resignation. He understands that he has no claim, no guarantee about the, the love person. He renounces the claim to the love, which is the content of his life. He's reconciled in pain, but then comes the marvel. I keep skirting around this trying to explain you the marvel. marvel. He makes one more movement more wonderful than anything else, for he says, I I nevertheless believe that I shall get her, namely on the strength of the absurd, on the strength of the fact that for God all things are possible. Then that is the night of faith. That's his move. We have to understand what it is, but not just sort of fancy words, but get the phenomena for what he's talking about here. Um, I want to see where, if I have to go to... You know, here's one more way to put it. Uh, On page 78 the bottom of that big paragraph. Now remember this time that Johannes de Salentio is talking. This book is written by a knight of resignation. You've got to keep remembering that. It gets, otherwise you certainly get lost. <coughs> so he says, by my own strength, that's the knight of resignation, I cannot get the least thing of what belongs to finitude, for I am continually using all my energy to renounce everything. That means I'm putting all, just keep putting the phenomenon. You put all your energy in your defenses. You make it perfectly safe to not, you, you, you make, you work at being invulnerable by being self-sufficient, by getting what enjoyment you get out of whatever happens to come around and not, not hanging on to this relationship. So that's, this is the night of resignation talking. By my own strength, I can't get the least thing that belongs to finitude for I'm continually using my energy to renounce everything. That is, using my energy in my defenses. But by my own strength, I can give up the princess and I'll be no sulker, but find joy and peace and repose in my pain. But with my own strength, I cannot get her back again. For all that strength is precisely what I use to renounce my claim to her. I mean, all my defenses against my vulnerability is what I've learned to do so well, that I can't get this real person back. But by faith... But by faith, says that marvelous knight, by faith you will get her on the strength of the absurd. And now, what does that mean? Well, 79, now we get to my favorite line about what you get, though I haven't really explained very well yet how you get it. About six lines down on 79. And yet it must be wonderful to get the princess. And yet it is only the knight of faith who is happy. Only he is heir apparent to the finite. See, there is a certain kind of joy and peace that always tied up with sorrow, comfort in sorrow, for the night of resignation. They, you, you'll, you'll be able to see that best when you see the movie. And yet it must be wonderful to get the princess, only the night of faith who is happy. Only he is heir apparent to the finite, whereas the night of resignation is a stranger and a foreigner. To get the princess in this way, to live in bliss, I take... Joy is, is a lower thing. Joy is what you get if you do your resignation knighthood right. Bliss is what you get if you do your uh, uh, night of faith 
right. To live in bliss and happiness in her company, day in and day out. We have to allow, of course, that the night of resignation too may get the princess, even though he has clearly perceived the impossibility of their future happiness. Remember, what does that refer to? What happens when the night of resignation gets the princess? Somebody tell me so I can be sure. What? No, no, he loves her. That's not the problem. What? He can't stay with her. Is that what you said? There's no place for her. Somebody wanted to say something about that? Yeah, the same thing. Yeah, there's, he, there's, remember, if he gets the night of the, the princess back, if you get the loved one back bodily right there in the same room with you, and if either you've already decided it's only the meaning of the, the, the relationship that matters, in which case they're just sort of botheringly in the room with you, or you get sucked back into thinking that really their bodily presence is so important that you can't live without it, in which case you're back in the vulnerability that you've used all your energy for defenses. So the Knight of Resignation can't get the princess back. But now let's go on. Uh, now we've allowed that the Knight of Resignation may get the princess even though he doesn't, uh, doesn't, can't, under, can't have their future happiness together. But now the Knight of Faith. Thus to live joyfully and happily in this way every moment on the strength of the absurd. Every moment to see the sword hanging over the head of the lo- hanging over the loved one's head and yet find not repose in the pain of resignation but joy and I think probably it should be bliss. I think it's the same Danish word for both but it helps to, that we have two words. That bliss on the strength of the absurd, that is wonderful. The one who does that, he is the great, only great one. The thought of it serves, stirs my soul, and so forth. Okay, now, I, I don't know if I, I've convinced you yet of what it's like, but it's having a sense that no matter what happens, I don't know, let me think before I talk. Uh, having a sense of the vulnerability of it and nonetheless getting more and more involved as if it was the safest thing of all. Now, the interesting thing is, anybody can do that. The question is, the, how do you, why isn't that just foolish? I mean, is there any good, is that, that's crazy. Build your whole life on a relationship the way Kierkegaard set it up in his romantic knights and ladies tradition, and then know full well that it's vulnerable and yet get more and more involved, build more and more of your life, and let it twine about more and more of the ligaments of your consciousness, why would anybody in their right mind do that? Well, the answer is sort of in your right mind, you wouldn't do that. That these people have, in effect, lost their mind, but not in some lower immediacy where they think that like some child that everything will be all right. They think that, they don't even think it, because thinking it, you wouldn't do it. They sense that, even though it's vulnerable, it's absolutely sure that they won't lose it. And that's because, uh, as Kierkegaard puts it, for God all things are possible, or, which that isn't much help, or because what they believe the absurd well, can happen, that helps a little. Uh, what they really believe is that, and this is what faith is, faith is the sense that even the impossible is possible. And they've got faith. Faith doesn't mean they believe there's a God up in heaven. It doesn't mean that they believe in an afterlife they'll get the other person back. 
Faith means that they actually live a contradiction. That this relationship is vulnerable and that they'll always have it. And and the interesting thing about it, if you're following it as sort of, having that kind of faith gives you a kind of bliss and fulfillment that you can't have if you're always using your energy and your defenses. Of course, it leaves you the puzzle, which I haven't answered yet. Yeah, but what if they do die? What if, what if Abraham does kill Isaac? What if your, your defining relation crashes? I mean, the idea that you got deeper and deeper into it because you had faith that even the impossible was possible doesn't seem much of a comfort. The whole point was to avoid that kind of disaster. And we haven't really figured out what that means yet. Yeah. That's right, except, except try to be careful because it helps with the understanding. To get, don't say no, that's too much like think and believe. All those are the wrong words. I, I fix, you sense or you feel. Is that all right? Yeah. Yes. That, that's that's neither because I mean Kierkegaard wants to set it up so that it's not worth it if your life your the meaning of your life will crash and your whole world will be you'll be lost in a kind of zombie-like state for the rest of your life if it if it fails somehow it it's not enough but it's good that you say that it's not enough to think this is so great that it's worth the risk and I'll do it even if it crashes. It's, he says that Abraham knows that he'll always have Isaac. Or, and this is a tricky part, and I'll get to that in a little while. Or he, God will give him a new Isaac. Now that's, that, wait, what's it? That's the giz, gizmo, which, which we'll get to. But I mean, the, the interesting thing is, the night of faith senses something which is really sort of contradictory. This is the one and only love for me. It defines who I am. It's eternal forever toward, uh, in temporality. And if something goes wrong with it, I'll get a new one. That's, that's completely crazy, paradoxical attitude. That it's not the attitude, it's worth it even, if it, even though I go into grief afterwards. The, 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 it's, a, it's a belief that in the world of the spirit, somehow it's got to work out. But what it would mean to get a new Isaac, Kierkegaard really doesn't understand very well. Uh, he, uh, and he doesn't have to, since it, he's writing it from the point of view of uh, Johannes de Salentio. But I don't think there's any place Kierkegaard wrote something that showed that he understood it very well. So I'm going to have to understand it for you, but in a minute, not quite yet. Uh, but all we've got so far is the night of faith is living a very, very incomprehensible, and here Kierkegaard word paradoxical, uh, way of life. He's living as if he's sure that he'll always have a defining commitment, and he knows perfectly well, seeing the sword over the head of the beloved, that he might lose the person who is the object of his defining commitment at any moment, and he has this sense that no matter what, it's all going to be all right so I can get more and more involved, more and more vulnerable, have no defenses, let this thing become t- 
totally the center of me and my world. And still, I see that it's vulnerable and I see that somehow it's all going to be all right. And that's, that's the oh, amazingly weird thing. And we haven't, I mean, I haven't explained it very well yet. But it's not that, for instance, I just want to get one thing off the table, so to speak, that it's, that he senses, or she senses, as she gets more and more, or he gets more and more involved in it, that, well, it's highly improbable that it's going to fail. That I want to just get that out of the way because it's sort of, that's the difference between the sort of paradoxicalness and a kind of, semi-rationalization of, of it. Where is that? Uh, I try to, there are all, all these things I want to talk about at once. No, I've lost it. If anybody, he says, it's not the improbable. Uh, good, okay, 75. Yeah, good. Uh, now let's see. So now we let the, I'm going to read some more. Uh, let let us now have the night of faith make its appearance in, in the case discussed. I'm in the f second full paragraph. Uh, he does exactly the same as the other night. He infinitely renounces the claim to the love which is the content of his life. He's reconciled in pain, but then comes the marvel. He makes one more movement more wonderful than anything else, for he says, I nevertheless believe that I shall get her and, of course, keep her on the strength of the absurd on the strength of the fact that for God all things are possible. And then I just think it's important to realize you can't get out of this by saying, well, that just means that I think that it's very improbable that I will lose this person. It's, he says the absurd is not one distinction among others embraced by the understanding. See, that would be, that's something you could think. Well, it's pretty secure. Maybe it's very secure. I'm young. She's young. We're all very healthy. We'll all live to be very old. You know, our parents live to be very old, so what are we worrying about? It's not like that. The absurd is not a distinction among others embraced by the understanding. It's not the improbable, the unexpected, or the unforeseen. The moment the knight resigned, he was convinced of the impossibility, humanly speaking. The, that is, again, the impossibility of it being secure. Uh, that was the conclusion of the understanding, and he had enough energy to think it. Um, only in the finite world at the bottom. It's only in the uh, finite world that understanding rules and there it was, it remains an impossibility. But the impossibility isn't, isn't, is more than just the improbable. It's, it's, what could be impossible? Well, it couldn't be impossible for the lad to get the princess. Maybe he turns out to the lad to be a fondling and really a prince himself or something. It's very improbable. But what's impossible, you have to keep saying to yourself, is the kind of guarantee that you need if you were going to get yourself defenselessly involved in this defining commitment such that your, your personality, your individuality, your world, and your life would be destroyed if it, was, if it failed. That's the impossible. You can't have the security. Okay, so good. Let's say something. I'm talking too much. Where, where, where is that? Um, bottom of 75. It was a little bit you read almost everything, but it was 
well, I've got to read it now. I see. Okay. It, well, let's, I'm going to read it. In an infinite sense, however, it was possible through renouncing it as a finite possibility, but then accepting that possibility is at the same time to have given it up. Yet for the understanding, there is no absurdity in possessing it, for it is only in the finite world that understanding rules, and there it was and remains an impossibility. Whoa, no wonder I skipped it. I don't understand it. You smuggle in the maybe there. That won't do at all. It would just, so you don't understand it now and I don't understand it. So let's, let's read it again. It's a challenge. I don't, I, I, I'm going to try again. The moment the knight resigned, he was convinced of the impossibility, humanly speaking. That was the conclusion of the understanding and he had the energy to think it. Okay, so both the knight of faith and the knight of faith know that the kind of guarantee that you would need to get involved like that is something you can't have in the finite world. In an infinite sense, however, it was possible through renouncing it as a finite possibility. I wonder, I'm worried. I may, I may end up having to just go back and try to unravel the Danish because when, when Hanny goes in and starts telling me in brackets what the antecedents of the pronouns are, you, he may be mixing us up. But let's try to understand it. And then if I can't, I'll go back and see if it's the fault of the translation. Let's try. In an infinite sense, however, it was possible through renouncing it as a finite possibility. But then accepting that possibility is at the same time to have given it up. And yet for the understanding, there is no absurdity in possessing it. For it is only in the finite world that understanding rules. And there it was and remains an impossibility. Anybody understand that? Uh, yeah, Beatrice. Well, I'm, I'm looking away because I have a feeling that we have to go on reading it because I'm not sure that he's talking about just the night of faith. Uh, it looks like that, I understand that sentence to be about the, the, the night of infinite resignation. Is there any reason to understand it that way? Let me look back. The moment the night resigned, he was convinced of the impossibility, humanly speaking, of the conclusion of the understanding. And he, so the night of resignation, let's get that clear, is convinced of the impossibility. And he thinks it, and he makes his move. Namely, idealize it, eternalize it, take it out of the finite. Now let's see what happens. In an infinite sense, however, it was possible through renunciation, renouncing it as a finite possibility. I think this is still a night of uh, resignation. But then accepting that possibility is at the same time to have given it up. Huh, I, I think that means just get, you know, resign yourself to not having the security that you need. For it is only in the finite world that understanding rules, and there it was and remains an impossibility. That is, in the finite world, you can't get this kind of guarantee. 
on this the night of faith is just as clear. See, that was the night of resignation, that, that sentence. And it may be that it's got because of the pronouns and sort of messed up. They're renouncing it as a finite part of the thing. I think, well, let's leave it at that. It is the night of resignation. On this the night of faith is just as clear. All that can save him is the absurd. Okay, they're both convinced, I'm beginning to understand it, that in the finite world, it's impossible to have the security you would need to have this kind of unconditional commitment. And so he's got to get it there, got to get it by the absurd. And this he grasps by faith. Accordingly, he admits the impossibility and at the same time believes the absurd. Uh, uh, he admits the impossibility of having a secure relationship and he accepts that he's always going to be able to have a secure relationship. He has no defenses. He's totally involved. He sees the head, the sword hanging over the head of the beloved. That's the impossibility. That is, it's vulnerability, which is the same as impossibility. You got that. I mean, it's impossible because it's vulnerable in the everyday world. He sees that, and then the absurd part gets more and more and more involved, just as if it was absolutely safe. Yeah. Well, sort of, except it's even a little weirder. The understanding plays a role. He's got an understanding just like everybody else. That's what that weird sentence says. He understands that if you're sensible, you can see that the sword could fall at any moment, that the finite world is totally vulnerable. He understands and he sees that you could renounce everything and then you'd be safe. And having seen all that, he then has, does, does something. It, doesn't, it isn't a question of thinking. He gets involved in the relation as if it were the safest thing of all. Meaning, instead of using all of his emotional energy in defenses of, of making sure that it stays beautiful and eternal, he uses all his emotional energy just to get more and more committed and more and more risk of that if everything went wrong, it would be really, really wrong. That's, that's how it is with him. That's what it is to be in this absurd relationship. I, but if you don't keep your eye on the phenomena, it just seems completely insane world, word juggling. But So let me repeat the phenomena. You may have known somebody like this. I knew one person at least who was like this, who was absolutely defenseless, who was able to be completely vulnerable, who was uh, aware that she was risking her happiness in getting involved that way, but who was uh, somehow had faith, was convinced that somehow everything would be all right. And it turned out all right. She lost her defining commitment and she got another one. But that's the next thing I haven't told you yet. I mean, that's, that's how, to, wh how to live this absurdity. So far I've just said the happiest people are the people who have faith, who see the vulnerability and don't let it keep them from getting involved and don't use their energy in their defenses. But now, and we're told, yes, but those people are totally incomprehensible because nobody in their right mind would do that sort of thing. And that's right, 
That's what Kierkegaard means when he says the night of faith lives in a paradoxical and even absurd way. They stake everything, they stake their life on something that they see is not reliable, not guaranteed. And and, uh, that's now... I, I'll go back to this because I want to make sure we get, get there. I'm not going to leave you without some, some understanding of what's going on here, even if Kierkegaard or de Salentio doesn't have it, because you need it to see the movie right. Okay, now let's see. He, I'm just reading my notes. So he accepts the impossibility, but he goes on as if it was totally safe. We've said that, I think, but I just want to make sure. Uh, yeah, that's the marvel. Okay. And how does... And, uh, and you don't get stuck in resignation. You make the two movements simultaneously. It's a bit late to say that, but let's see if I need to say that. On 70. Uh, yeah, that's being a new creation. That's all right. Uh, the night of resignation doesn't want to base his life on something so insecure. Let's see if I've said that. Yeah. And now... Yeah. Okay. Now, I've got to catch up. I, I got carried away into trying to say the phenomena. I have to show you the the pages. Uh So let's go remember, because it's going to be important too for the movie, that what's happening meanwhile with the Night of Resignation. The Night of Resignation has done something terrific. They are able to do this idealizing, become self-sufficient, and they, are, they just glide along in the real world because nothing can really hurt them. They have peace and repose and they, because they've made the movement of infinite resignation. They're Nights of Resignation... They, I just want to phrase, because I think there's somebody in the movie who illustrates this. On 67, he's talking about how they glide along at the bottom of 67. The nights of infinite resignation are readily recognizable. Their gait is gliding and bold. Uh, that's, that is, they're so, they are really secure. And not in an absurd and, uh, way, They've, they've made a very sensible move. They've sacrificed their finite, temporal, embodied relationship to the one they love for total security. So they can drift along. Nothing can take away the significance of the relationship, the eternal meaning of the relationship. That's important. When you see the movie, figure out who that is. Uh, and, and I didn't read, I think, the passage where... They, they are using all their energy in their defenses. Yeah, I, did I read this on page 78? I don't think so. I'm about, did I read the, the bottom part of the middle paragraph on 78? Does any of you know who marked things up? I don't think so, so let's read it. I'm, going, I'm starting about 15 lines from the bottom of the middle paragraph. That by my own strength, I cannot get the least thing of what belongs to finitude. Remember who my, uh, the, who's talking? Just to remind you, the Salentio, and what is he? Okay, okay, now with, but by my own strength, I can't get the least thing of what belongs to finitude, for I'm continually using my energy to renounce everything. 
But by my own strength, I can give up the princess and I shall be no sulker. I'll find joy and peace and repose in pain. But with my own strength, I can't get her back again. For all that strength is precisely what I use to renounce my claim on her. But by faith, says the marvelous knight, by faith you will get her on the strength of the absurd. Okay, that sums up a lot of what I did read and say. But it's, an, it's a good, good quote. Okay, and now all this is turning out to be the paradox of existence, which I spent plenty of time explaining, but now let's see if you need some quotes. I don't need that one. I did it already. Let's look at this one. Yeah, I did that one. So they're belie- he's believing, and believe is the wrong word. If I, I say in my notes, does he believe both that it's impossible and the surest thing of all? Does he? No, not believe it. He lives it. And that's, that's why it's a paradox, not of the mind, but the paradox of existence. He exists in a way which is paradoxical by getting more and more involved and knowing it's, the, it's vulnerable. And acting, seeing the vulnerability and acting as if it's the surest thing of all. That's not like believing, but that's faith. Faith isn't believing. It's acting in a world in which even the impossible is possible. That's so it works. I've said that already. Uh, you can't understand it. You can only do it. That's sum up what I've been saying. Uh, and, and people do do it. As I say, I know somebody who did it, and I'm sure you do too, or may well. And... And this is, that's the paradox of existence. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean the phrase, the paradox of existence, which means doing something impossible, even though you can't think it, is on page 76, the, the third line of the first full paragraph. It's not the immediate inclination of the heart, but the paradox of existence. And the reason you know it's not the immediate inclination of the heart. Why is that? How do you know that? for sure, when you see this guy? Because he's made the movements of resignation. And he's not there in the lower immediacy of the, of the uh, immediate inclination of the heart. It's not, gee, this is so overwhelming, it just must be made for he- for in heaven and last forever. How could it be otherwise? That's not what happens. He's made the movement of resignation, so it's got to be something else. Now, I'm catching up here. Let me see. So, and it's absurd from any rational, reflective, thinking point of view. I think I said that a dozen times already, and I'm sure I must have found it here too. Yep. So what is the absurd here? It's not the improbable, we said that. Uh, it's, it's, it's tied in with what he calls faith. Let me see now if I need to read that. No, that's fine too. Uh, okay, there's a little parenthetical lesson here. I still have time. Don't, it, 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 don't have some kind of stock response to these words like absurd. This is something that goes wrong in people's papers sometimes. Just as God doesn't mean for Kierkegaard what you'd expect it to, it to mean because God quote, is that all things are possible and that all things are possible is God. God is the field in which even the impossible is possible. It's a very strange 
meaning of God. But the absurd for him is very different than the absurd for Sartre, say, where the absurd means pure freedom, that there's no reason to choose one thing rather than another, and you just have to act without any justification, and therefore all your actions are absurd. Moreover, you're so free that even though you act and commit yourself, the next moment you're free to take back your commitment or not. So it isn't really a commitment. That's absurd. And then there's Camus kind of absurdity, that, the wor- the, that what we expect from the world is some kind of guarantee, but we just don't get it. We, don't, we can't get that kind of absolute guarantee. Therefore, it's all absurd. That's certainly not what Kierkegaard is saying. The interesting thing is that if you accept the absurd in the right way, you can act in such a way as to commit yourself forever. So Sartre would be wrong if if, if Kierkegaard is right. And moreover, uh, when you do commit yourself, it's, it's got a certain kind of guarantee and satisfies your need for the absolute, which Camus said you couldn't have. Only it's absurd. So they're, they're using absurd in totally different ways. Absurd in Sartre and Camus means sort of the opposite of what absurd means in Kierkegaard. Because for Kierkegaard, what's absurd is that you commit yourself and it's forever. You, can, you, you don't have to keep redoing it. And it's on the answering of a, you, your call to do it. It isn't just something you sort of flip a coin and you commit yourself to whoever it happens to point to, spin the bottle kind of commitment. Not at all. It's It's... Uh, it's your commitment, it's forever, and that's what's absurd. Now, so it's, don't believe whatever you heard absurd before, I mean, believe it if you read Sartre. He's, he's really describing something that is absurd, a certain kind of freedom you can have. And Camus is certainly describing something that's absurd, namely human existence without the kind of God that we thought uh, we needed from Camus' point of view. But now we've got this other kind of thing, and that's what we want to know now, and now I'm going to, I just have time, which I, I know I'm going to keep, take time because you have to s- understand it for the movie. But so one more thing and then I will be there. Uh, yeah, well, here's this mysterious phrase now that I'm going to explain that Kierkegaard himself doesn't explain. The bottom of 65. This is about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, but never let Abraham and Isaac's story confuse you. Stick to the phenomenon. So Abraham sacrificing Isaac just means that Abraham had a defining commitment to Isaac. Isaac was going to make Abraham the father of the faith. If Abraham kills Isaac, his whole world is lost, what, what it is, what it means to be Abraham, what he was going to do for the world, and so forth. And so, but now, then comes near the bottom of 65. His faith was not that he would be happy sometime in the hereafter, but that he would find blessed happiness here in the world. God would give him a new Isaac, bring the sacrificial offer back to life. He believed on the strength of the absurd for all human calculation had long since been suspended. Boy, is that weird. And it goes by so fast, and yet the whole thing doesn't make any sense unless you can understand what that could possibly mean. Well, first, one thing it can't mean is a famous movie called Ordet. By the way, next time I hand you out a page, I'm going to list about the seven movies that I talked about at various points because people have asked me to. There's a Danish movie called Ordet in which the, the hero has been reading Kierkegaard and reading Fear and Trembling. And when the, the woman, the most the important woman, I forget whether she's his wife or not, dies, he stands in front of her coffin at the end of the movie with so much faith 
that she must not die, that she gets up out of her coffin. That's not what Kierkegaard has in mind. That's the improbable, and it isn't getting... And the, Kierkegaard wants to leave space for losing your Isaac and getting a new Isaac. But how can you do that? Well, that's... Now I'm going to tell you how I think you do it. I think... The, and again, it's the phenomenon. Kierkegaard knows that it must be so somehow. Why does he know? Because in the world of the spirit, it must be so that if you've got the, the, the energy to constantly commit yourself and get more and more involved in your Isaac and your defining commitment, then somehow it must be the case that you will always have a defining commitment. Even if it requires the, para, the new paradox that you can somehow get a new commitment and yet keep your old identity. And you, how can you... You just got yourself defined in terms of your Isaac, of your unconditional commitment, of your Beatrice, and now you, she's gone or he's gone. And now what can... How can you get out of the forever that you got yourself into? Well, that's what I'm going to try to explain. That all the further Kierkegaard gets is that if you, do, if you dwell on the image of the past one, and try to hold on to that memory, and that that's what and you can and you know you can always do that. If that's what makes you able to commit yourself, it won't work because you're only committing yourself to the infinite, uh, eternal part. You haven't got anything finite and temporal that's meaningful in your life. You've made it safe by making it irrelevant. So how do you do it? Well, uh, you do it the way people do it all the time. I mean, it's really not as mysterious as it sounds. I wonder if anybody has seen what the phenomena is. What happens to some, when somebody who loves somebody loses the person they love? I mean, they can go into re resignation. They can just sort of give up. But, that's, but there's something else positive that can happen. They can go into grief. Kierkegaard doesn't understand grief, but he sort of knows that there has to be such a thing because otherwise in the world of the spirit things won't work out right. Because in the world of the spirit, when you, Isaac dies sometime, the sword falls on the head of the beloved. I mean, he's not going to deny that. Uh, they all realize that. That's part of what the, the, the night of resignation and the night of faith both realize that the finite is vulnerable. So what happens in grief? Well, what happens in grief is that you take, you, well, it's, it's something paradoxical that really happens. Eternity changes in time. You get, when you got the forever in, in time, it looked like what happened was you're living along in this series of moments, you get the instant. And that's going to tell you what you were lacking all along and what you're going to have from now on. And that tells you that's your identity. That's what makes you an individual. Well, something else can happen. This can change without changing. I don't want to be mysterious. It means the following. It means that you become the person who loved and lost the princess, and that still defines you. You have, the way you are and the way your world is is totally marked by the fact that you loved and lost the princess. But if you do that the right way, you're open to another relationship. And that's because you haven't stuck with the first one. And it's the difference between, and in my slogan sort of, if you dwell on the relationship, 
then you're stuck. You become a night of resignation. You just keep it in front of you even though the other person is gone. You just keep remembering how great it was. If you dwell in the relationship, that is, if you see everything in your life and the world that in terms of the fact that you had this relationship, you're open to a possible new Isaac. You get a new one. When I taught this at MIT, I had a way of explaining it that will work around here too. I, uh, my MIT picture was this. And so here's X and has a defining commitment for A. Now, either... And here's the, the resignation person now. When A, and now we ask, what happens when A dies or leaves? Well, the defining, the, the resignation person has put A in brackets. That, by that I mean he's got the eternal significance of A, sort of bracketed out safely from anything temporal and eternal, and he dwells on it and keeps it. What happens over here is much more interesting and mysterious. With grief... This person can become the person who loved and lost A and who's now open to B because they haven't betrayed their defining commitment. It still defines them, but it defines them in such a way that's what, they, what, what the world of the spirit allows them to do is to relate in such a way to A, to incorporate it through grief or to interiorize it and, and and then not lose it, not betray it, but live out of it in a way that gets them a new Isaac. I'm I'm just filling in the phenomena that Kierkegaard knows, but he doesn't know that he knows it. He knows it because he knows that in the world of the spirit, it's all going to be all right. And he knows that that means that, he, that Abraham could get a new Isaac. But how can Abraham get a new Isaac? His life is defined in terms of Isaac. His world is defined in terms of Isaac. Well by having a, a way of relating this. You don't do this right away, of course, or you're, you're in some kind of weird thing over here. But the sense that you can get a new Isaac enables you to completely devote yourself to the defining cause or person. And you sense that you will always have a defining cause or person. That's what the new Isaac means. It doesn't mean you get a clone of the Isaac you had. It means you get a new object for your defining commitment. It means that you can totally go into this one. Now comes something else. You can't go into this defining commitment thinking, oh, well, if I lose them, it's okay. I can always just interiorize them and get another one. That's very important. Grief is paradoxical. When you're in grief, you think... You feel that you've lost the one person that really would have been the right person for you and you've lost them and that's that and your life is either, you can either keep the ideal of the relation or you can just go back to lower immediacy, but you've had it. That's how it feels. You can't say to yourself in grief, ah, oh, yeah, but I know that I'll get over grief and get another one. Uh, that's not the way it works. I mean, the grief is a paradoxical Emotion in which you feel this is it, this is a disaster, this is the, the, the end of a, of, of a certain life, and you feel that I'll always have some object of a defining relation. You, how you can have both of those, I don't know. So you could call it absurd. Uh, you have, it's, a, it's a paradoxical emotion. But if you can, you, if you can live that paradoxical emotion, then you can get uh, 
it isn't, you see, you can't, and maybe that's why Kierkegaard doesn't talk about it, and I shouldn't be talking about it. You can't use it to fall back on and say, okay, I can get as involved as I please with the person I care about and who's my defining commitment, because after all, if they die, I'll just go through grief and then I'll get another. I mean, it's true that somehow one does have a sense that, all, that even the impossible is possible and that you can keep your identity and even if the other person dies and yet be open to get a new person. But you can't really, uh, you know, you can't think it. You can't count on it. You can't do it on purpose. But so, so all that Kierkegaard can say is that Abraham acted as if he sensed that he would have a new Isaac even though he knew that it was impossible, that if he killed Isaac, Isaac was dead, and if Isaac is dead, that's the end, because he's only got his one definition in Isaac. Abraham has this sort of contradictory way of acting. That's the paradox of existence. But it works. I mean, that's what I just want to show on the board here. There is, a, there is an experience which stands behind this weird sentence, which goes by once in the book, as far as I know, God will give him a new Isaac or bring the sacrificial offer back to life. So, or debt bring is the wrong way, bringing the lady in the coffin back to life by faith. That doesn't, doesn't help any. But I think the idea of getting a new Isaac in my picture here of this, and I'll say it one more time, interiorizing, incorporating as part of your identity the, that you had this love and that you lost it, makes it possible to have another. That's the new, a new Isaac, meaning a new defining commitment. That's the big deal. Now, good, we got four minutes. Say something. But Abraham, but Abraham believed New Isaac. Well, good. Yeah, well, except that the thing is that Abraham does. What does he say here? Maybe you got Abraham. His faith was not that he would be blessing the other world. His faith was. I'm glad it doesn't say he believed. If you say his faith was that God could give him a new Isaac, you've got to read that as saying he lived in such a way that it it he could only live that way. In a, in a field of, of, of faith in which he knew somehow that it, would all, that it would always be all right, even though he also knew that it would be a disaster, it would make his life impossible. I mean, that's, if, if he actually believed, oh, well, I can, I can kill Isaac, God will give me a new Isaac, that would be a bad news. He's just got to, you've got to say something like, he lived in such a way that he knew that in the world of the spirit, he would always have a defining commitment. It's like sort of getting grief too soon. Yeah, you're right. He's, he's got to, but, but if you take that away too much, then you can't understand how he would be able to kill Isaac or how they would, how the night of, how you'd be able to be making more, yourself more and more vulnerable. It's a tricky thing. You're on the right track. It's got to be a way of life a, a paradox of how you live that you both base everything on this relationship, get more involved in it, know that it's, sense that it's insecure, and sense that it's okay. You get the last word. Well, I was just wondering, say 
Oh, well, that's easy. I mean, what Martin Luther King would have, if, if the peace marchers failed, he would go through grief, he would be lost, he wouldn't know what to do when he woke up in the morning, and then he started what he really did. You know that, this is funny, if you, if you're, if you succeed, you're equally in trouble on this. What he really does, let's just make up a story which isn't much wrong about Martin Luther King. He succeeded. The peace marks worked. The peace marches worked. The, the black people got at least in principle justice, which is finally getting more and more worked out. He saw the promised land from the mountain. And then what? Well, he didn't know what to do and he became an anti-Vietnam War person. He just took on a new cause. He got a new, that's his new Isaac didn't work very well because he wasn't around very long afterward and it didn't seem like it really grabbed him. But in principle, you could, uh, it would be the same. You would get a new cause and you wouldn't give up that you had the old cause and either succeeded in it or failed in it. That would be... And here's the crucial thing I haven't said. This is very important for the movie. Very important. How could I not say it? It will be in terms of your first relationship that you will get your second one. That it's because it'll be through your first world that you will get your second world. That's got to be, that's how it is to have it here. I mean, it's, it becomes so much a part of you when you dwell in it that it opens you up to the new possibility, the new relation. You, and now you are all looking, or at least you are, and I understand, very puzzled. That's fine. The, you're going to see the movie next time. You're going to, all of this is going to be shown you in a very convincing way. Let me just make sure that I haven't, that I'm not going to discover something that I wish I hadn't gotten. Uh, yep, that's it. Okay. <laughs>